Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Each year, roughly one in five adults in the U.S. will experience a mental illness, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. These illnesses can increase the likelihood of suicide. According to Emory University, suicide is the second leading cause of death among 25 to 34-year-olds. And despite increasing awareness, stigma still exists. Coming up, we'll talk about some of the illnesses that young people are diagnosed with, including schizophrenia. But first, to help break down the stigma associated with mental illness, the nonprofit group Mental Health Connecticut is encouraging young adults to write. It's offering a course called Write On, geared towards young people with a mental illness, with the goal for them to become better storytellers and communicators about their personal experiences. Joining us now in studio is the instructor for Write On, Janet Reynolds, along with two participants in the course, Jamie Heiner and Sam, who preferred we not use his last name. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'll start with you, Janet. You're the instructor. I understand you're a longtime writer and editor, used to be a high school English teacher, but you also know about mental illness firsthand. Yes. Uh, well, I am the parent of a son with schizophrenia, and um, as um, happens with most young adults, he was diagnosed when he was in his mid-20s, and uh, he's doing quite well and is recovering and is... Um, taking care of recovering his life, but it's still a major stigma. So I understand that right on was your idea. You approached Mental Health Connecticut. Tell us about that. Well, as a lifelong storyteller and uh, a reporter and editor, um, I believe strongly in the power of words. You know, it's writing is how I figure out things. And um, I know that it's helped me feel better. And I think that people can use words to sort of um, better understand themselves. So I thought it would be a way for young adults to sort of continue their recovery process and um, also perhaps discover some things about themselves that they perhaps were not very clear on. And so I came to Mental Health Connecticut and they were super excited. I worked with Susie Craig and we've crafted this program. We did two betas last year, um, which were well received by the participants. And so we decided to expand it this year and include a a more um, complete advocacy part to it. So part of the goal is to combat stigma, but how do you get people who are dealing with, you know, uh, a very personal thing to feel comfortable writing about it? Well, uh, it was a 10-week class, and you ease in slowly. Um, I think it's really important for the people who are participating in the class to feel like it's a safe space and that they are um, protected while they're there and that the people who are there um, have their backs. And... um, We did something where we had this um, gourd, and I would have everybody write each week on a piece of paper their greatest anxiety or fear at that particular moment. It could be related to the class. It could be something that was bothering them. And then we would put it in the gourd, and then the gourd would hold it for us. And it was a way of sort of letting go of whatever was going on at that moment and just try to sort of be there for those two hours. Um, We worked in small groups, and then increased sort of the size of the group, and I think that helped to build um, safety and understanding. And we didn't start talking about mental health issues 
right away. We started talking about good writing and sort of what um, creates good writing. We did writing prompts that were, you know, quite varied. You know, it's Halloween. You're a piece of Halloween candy. How do you feel? I mean, so that it was just getting them using their writing muscle and um, starting to feel good about writing and then also start to feel good about being with each other. How much of your background did you share with the participants to get them to feel comfortable? Uh, I was open at the first class that uh, I have a child with schizophrenia. And at various points, uh, we would share stories. Um, we would watch TED Talks and then discuss things relating to that and things like that, podcasts as well as sort of jumping off points so that um, we were discussing different parts of mental health issues. And, you know, as appropriate, I would sort of share what had happened relative to my family. A couple of the participants are in studio with us. Um, I'll turn to Jamie Heiner first. Uh, first, welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you. How did you hear about Write On? Um, so I am a psychology major at Central Connecticut State University, and our department actually sent out an email about it and said that this might be something that you guys should look into, seeing as you know, we're psychology students. We like learning about how the brain works and um, the different things that can affect it. And um, I just decided to apply. And what was your impression when you walked in and met Janet, saw the other participants? Did you feel comfortable? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Um, definitely on my first day, I wasn't sure if I was going to come back. Um, I had never approached a group of people in that way before and told them like, hey, I have a mental illness. And so that was very, very new to me. Um, and I was very apprehensive and not at all on board yet. I remember I came home and I was um, talking to my boyfriend and I was like, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to be something I continue doing. Um, but I decided to stick with it for a couple of weeks and I'm really, really glad that I did. What got your foot in the door? Well, I actually am not new to the whole spreading awareness thing. Um, I've done a lot of awareness work surrounding sexual assault and victim empowerment. Um, for about two years, I completely stopped when my mental illness got to the point that I needed to focus on that. Um, and I don't know. I just felt like I needed to start telling my story again because it's so cathartic to connect with people and to be able to understand where they're coming from and have somebody else understand where you're coming from. It's very healing. And what are you comfortable talking about to have our listeners understand a little bit about your story? Well, um, my story was made very public by my abuser. Um, I was raped by my science teacher when I was 15. And that happened repeatedly over the course of a year and a half, actually more than a year and a half, but we'll be generous. Um, he is now serving a very long sentence in the Utah prison. Um, and so I'm very, very open about it because I believe that silence creates more victims and it creates more stigma. And since my story is already very, very public, um, I feel like I should use that to be able to reach out to other people and help them understand that they're not alone. And what about your diagnosis? Tell us about your mental illness. So I am diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as well as generalized anxiety, um, both of which affect me on a daily basis. And it wasn't until recently that I decided to be proactive with um, treating it. 
I just kind of tried to pretend that it didn't exist and that it was totally normal to, you know, get sent to the hospital in an ambulance because you're having a major panic attack and your coworkers are like, dude, this is not cool. Um, and so through Right On, actually, I realized that mental health isn't anything to be ashamed of and that your brain is just like any other organ in your body and it deserves the care and um, treatment that it needs. And so now I'm working with a psychiatrist and a team of mental health professionals that are helping me get back on track. You mentioned your coworkers. How did you talk with them about your story? I actually didn't like telling anyone at that point. Um, So the abuse occurred in Utah. And after the trial concluded, I moved here to Connecticut. Um, And when that happened, I pretty much tried to leave everything behind. Um, It was very, very hard for me to talk about it for a long time. Um, And really, I I just tried to pretend that nothing was wrong and that everything was okay. And um, even when I had the panic attack and the ambulance came, I still just said, oh, it's just, you know, a health issue that I have Um, because I still was very, very afraid of what they might think of me if they knew that I struggled with mental health issues. This is where we live. Today we're learning about Write On, a program that helps young adults write about their mental illness as a way to break down stigma surrounding mental health issues. In studio with me is Write On instructor Janet Reynolds and participants including Jamie Heiner. Jamie, I understand you brought some of what you wrote during the course. Can you read some of it for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I wear my darkness the way some girls choose to wear stilettos. To the casual observer, it appears beautiful, alluring, a stunningly crafted accessory. People tell me I have beautifully deep eyes, that I'm so wise for my age. But what they don't know is that depth and wisdom have come at a high price. Just like a pair of heels that have been strapped to my feet for hours, only I know the true pain that beauty has cost. I am the one who feels the pins and needles shooting through the bottoms of my feet. I'm the only one who realizes that I'm walking on thin glass, and even though everything is serene and beautiful for now, I'm simply standing in the eye of a hurricane, and soon enough the glass will break and I will fall, plunging back into the darkness. April was Child Abuse Prevention Month. I'm a survivor of child abuse. Two years ago, I said those seven words with pride because I'd survived. 483 days of being raped and manipulated by my science teacher, and I survived. I'd been surrounded by the fires of hell, but the fire within me was stronger. I'd fought fought the hard fight, and I'd won. Two years ago was the last time I spoke about abuse, overcoming, and not letting my past define my future. Since then, those same seven words have become a secret. They've lived within me, tucked into the deepest recesses of my soul where no one could reach them. I was ashamed of the scars that I bore. I doubted myself, and I believed that I wasn't enough. I buried the pain, pushed it away, and refused to acknowledge that it even existed. And then I broke. For so long, I'd gained comfort and peace knowing that my story may help someone else. I spoke to help others, and in doing so, helped myself. But something had shifted, and those words that had been bottled up for so long had now found a voice of their own and were banging against the walls of my subconscious to be let out. I spent the afternoon of my birthday last year on my first ever ambulance ride to the hospital. Those words had finally gained enough strength to shatter the barriers I'd so carefully placed around them, and I had a panic attack at work. 
First, my vision blurred, my heart rate increased until I thought it might pound out of my chest, and I felt as though no oxygen was being absorbed into my bloodstream no matter how fast my lungs contracted. My fingers went numb and my whole body shook uncontrollably. It was pure hell. One of my coworkers called the paramedics and before I knew what was happening, I was strapped onto a stretcher watching the highway speed away behind us. Although my eyes were closed, I remember looking around in that moment and taking an inventory of my life. It's been six years, Jamie. You should be better by now, I told myself. I thought about my loving family, my wonderful job, the boyfriend I never thought I deserved, my supportive friends and loved ones, the hourglass body I'd always longed for, the freedom of living on my own. These are all things I've wanted in my entire life, so now that I have them, why am I still not okay? Everybody's got a story to tell. And the thing is, everybody's story is different. Every journey of healing looks different. It comes in waves, and as time goes on, the ripples get smaller and farther apart. Thank you for reading that, Jamie. You're welcome. I'll turn back to Janet Reynolds again, instructor for Write On. Uh, we learned a little bit about Jamie's background, um, a lot of very hard um, subject matter. Right. Um, how do you work with someone like Jamie to, to bring that out on, on paper, on the screen? Well, you know, it's interesting you know, Jamie referenced it earlier, and, you know, the anxiety level in that first class was pretty high, um, uh, including myself, because, you know, it was a small room, and one of the things we did after a few weeks was get a bigger room. Um, but um, I think it's important to sort of try to create a space so that people feel comfortable, and then I gradually inserted myself. I realized that it wasn't until the week, week five that I actually read anything they had written. Instead, they were sharing what they had written with each other and in smaller groups. And then I started to sort of insert myself into that and work with them one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and as we started to get into sort of trickier issues relating to mental health. So I was able to sort of talk to people more individually and then come in as the larger group. And I think that made a difference. Another participant in Write On is also in studio with us. Uh, Sam, as I mentioned earlier, you felt comfortable just using your first name. But first, thank you for coming in to share your story. Oh, thank you for having me. How did you find Write On? Um, I had been working with my therapist, uh, mostly using writing to kind of convey the feelings I couldn't um, express normally, um, as well as I'd go on rants about uh, my my want to change the stigma. So when he saw that the flyer for this program, he said, you need to do this. And so I applied. You applied and described the first time you walked into the class. Um, well, I was the, <laughs> the first person there. I tend to get places early. And uh, th there was a lot of anxiety. And I, I think that we a lot of us were, were a little uncomfortable. But at the same time, I think it was kind of like jumping into cold water where, um, you know, we just started to do it. And that really helped because there, there was no pause in between. So um, we, we didn't have any time to really hesitate. And it really gave us, I think, um, the jump that we needed to, to really uh, understand that this is um, going to be something productive. You mentioned a therapist. Was this the first time that you were writing about your experiences? I had been writing about my experiences since 2012. I just had never shared it. Can you tell us about the mental illness you've been diagnosed with? Of course, yes. Um, I am diagnosed bipolar 1, and I have generalized anxiety. Mm. 
So when you're thinking about what you're going to write and sharing it with others, what were some of the things that you felt comfortable sharing? Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be very open. Um, and I, I think I, I was, but also in the back of my mind, um, I had uh, given a speech in, in a speech writing class um, where we were all very close um, about my illness and it wasn't well received. So I feel like that was um, in the back of my mind as to uh, conveying my story, um, how to make it something digestible for someone who may not necessarily have mental illness. You said it wasn't well received in this this class earlier, this earlier class. Why was that? Did they just have um, uh, misconceptions about what bipolar disorder was? They were. We it, we were a very close group, um, and they were wonderful people. But I think I came in a little bit too heavy with what was going on and explaining myself. Um, so I think that you know, working with Janet, one of the things that um, I was able to pick up through her teaching was uh, kind of a way of bridging that so that um, when I got to the more serious topics, um, the audience was a little bit more comfortable, um, which I think really kind of helps to, uh, to, to convey the story better. Can you share something that you have written for Write On? Yes, yes I can. We all get that gut-wrenching feeling when there's a shooting, and I think no matter who you are, if you're a decent person, the last thing you want to hear about is more violence. And whenever you see violence on the TV, your first thought is, oh God, not again. But after that, if you're mentally ill, there's another thought. There's a thought of, please don't be mentally ill, please don't be mentally ill. And you sit there and you listen to the broadcast and you wait to hear those words. And when you do, your stomach drops. You see, we seem to be a convenient boogeyman for a lot of the media to get ratings and views. And this has led to a solidified stigma and the acceptance and glossing over the idea or the association that the mentally ill are violent. Three times within the course of about a year and a half, um, out in public, I've heard people j discussing the idea of putting all the mentally ill people into camps so that they can all kill each other. And these people had no idea that someone who was mentally ill was sitting right next to them just wanting to go about their day. But for every Adam Lanza or James Holmes, there's a million of us who are mentally ill and we just want to have a good life. We're your sons, we're your daughters, we're your friends, we're your husbands, we're your wives. People with severe mental illness are 10 times more likely to be victims of violence than actually to be violent. And let's hold up some historical figures um, who are mentally ill. Abraham Lincoln, Van Gogh, Churchill, and most recently, Prince Harry. We're just like you. You've probably come across a mentally ill person today and never even knew it. Well, thank you for sharing that. How did it feel when you wrote that down and you were able to, to convey that? It, it felt good. Um, I, I found that within my close group of friends and expanding outward that generally when I open up about the mental illness, um, it's not the first thing I tell anyone, obviously. Um, but when I start talking about it, generally people come forward and say, oh, well, you know, I have this too. And so it got to a point where if I was able to speak about it, that it, um, it felt like it would help those people that weren't necessarily comfortable coming forward first to, um, to kind of tell their story. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 
Today we're talking with Connecticut residents who are working to break down the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. Janet Reynolds is the instructor for Write On. It's a writing course that she developed in partnership with the nonprofit Mental Health Connecticut. Two of the participants are also in studio to tell us why they decided to write down their personal experiences. Jamie Heiner and Sam, who wanted to only use his first name. When we come back, we'll hear more about Write On. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about Write On. It's a writing course meant to battle stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Janet Reynolds is in the studio with us. She came up with the idea, and she's the writing instructor for the 10-week course. Two of the participants are here as well, Sam, who wanted to use his first name only, and Jamie Heiner. Now, Jamie, can you talk about what you've noticed since you've been diagnosed with a mental illness, how people perceive you? People often hear mental health and they think that you should look a certain way or that you should always act a certain way. And I am a very bubbly, outgoing person. Um, And one of the things that happens when you have mental health is you become really good at hiding things. And so I've had people tell me like, well, you don't look like you have a mental health disorder or, well, you don't look like you're having a bad day. And I think that it's so important to realize that mental health affects everyone in different ways and that it appears differently in every single different person. Um, And I I mean, I think it's true. You know, somebody has cancer um, or somebody breaks their arm. You know, everybody's all like, ooh, let me help you, you know, Mm -hmm. or oh, how sad. And and I think that um, mental health, you know, can be just very silent in in a lot of ways physically and also in how people are hiding because, you know, one of the challenges of of, uh, a mental illness is that, you know, as I said earlier, it doesn't happen overnight and the person, him or herself, is also struggling to try to articulate in their own sort of head and uh, their surroundings exactly what's going on. And so um, it, it would be a wonderful world if people were able to reach out for help earlier because they weren't concerned about the stigma and they were just confused and felt as if they could actually ask questions about strange thoughts or whatever it is or, you know, feeling anxious when you do certain things. You know, I mean, everybody's anxious, but like what's normal anxious or, you know, and to be able to just sort of say to somebody, hey, I feel anxious about this and not feel like you're going to be judged. Um, and so I think that's those things are important, too. It's 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 a, it's. It's everybody. Sam said it very well earlier. You know, it's everybody who walks by the, by you on the street. One in five. That's a lot. If I could just um, add to something that uh, Jamie said in her writing and kind of uh, bouncing off of what Janet said, um, if you feel like you're, um, if you feel like you you have these uh, some, something isn't right, um, you know. It's okay, and if you're if you're starting that that journey of recovery from something like that, everyone's path is going to be different. Everyone's way of getting there is going to be different, and it might take some time. And it's not linear, um, but the important part is to keep at it. And I think that that's something that can get lost or is sometimes just just uh, it, it's a self discouraging. Uh, process at first because there can be a lot of 
progress that needs to be made. But if you keep at it, that progress will get there eventually. Can I add to what he just said? Sure. Um, I think that that is so important because especially with the stigma surrounding mental health, with everyone kind of judging you, like you don't need to judge yourself too. And it's completely okay to have a bad day or to have a bad week. Like as long as you remember to, like as cheesy as it sounds, to love yourself and to give yourself this space that you need to feel whatever it is that you're feeling and process those emotions, like that's the best thing that you can do for yourself. Because, you know, like Sam said, as long as you just keep moving forward and you, if you can, like reach out to the people that are there to help, I mean, that's what they're there for. And I think that um, bouncing off of that, this is something that Janet really stressed with us was when we were writing, write for five minutes, write for 10 minutes, don't beat yourself up over the other 50. Um, And that not only helped our writing, but I think that's a very um, applicable way of thinking about dealing with your mental illness you know if you give yourself five minutes ten minutes to kind of sit down and process well that can be enough for now you know don't beat yourself up that you're not where you need to be don't beat yourself up because of you know what you're missing or anything focus on yourself for just a little bit and there's nothing wrong with taking a small amount of time out of your day i just love everything you're saying right now (laughs) um you really do just need to like celebrate the little victories. I mean, earlier this week, actually, I sat in my car for 30 minutes because I couldn't bring myself to walk into Target because my personal bubble was like 20 feet outside of my personal space. Um, and I just couldn't handle strangers in my space. And eventually, I was able to bribe myself with a Starbucks drink because Starbucks mm-hmm. is in Target now. And Rather than like beating myself up all night that it took that long, I chose to focus on the fact that I was able to get myself to the point where I was comfortable to go inside. And so it really is just focusing on the positives and focusing on the victories because mental health is a very long and very hard struggle. And there's, you know, you can definitely do it positively. And I think one thing that people recognize in the class, and you guys can jump in if you think I'm wrong, but I think because they, I mean, there was a lot of raw writing um, and a lot of emotion and a lot of very, very challenging things um, that people wrote about. And um, and then they got through them. And it was this great victory because they were writing about it now, sharing it with other people, even perhaps reading about it with some of the other um, speeches and the rest of the speeches you didn't hear from Sam and Jamie. Um, and that's that's taking charge. That's that's you sort of having the power to sort of help direct where you want to go and how you want to get there. And yet not you know, not forgetting that this other thing happened. But that was then. This is now. And and you know, and here we go. So. Absolutely. I mean, it's like those thoughts and fears and anxieties are in your brain and it's like this gray sludge and as soon as you can put it on paper and see it in black and white like it takes that power away from it and all of a sudden that power is in your hands and it really like you do you get over it a lot quicker than if it sits and stews in your brain and hearing the other people and what they wrote about and sort of saying oh okay well that didn't happen to me, you know, but something else did. And and just being able to recognize that, so. Janet Reynolds, again, you're the instructor for Write On. Um, this course has been going on now for how many weeks? And where does it go from here? 
Uh, well, we did 10 weeks, and um, now we've started doing our public awareness, um, including this show. Uh, there's going to be a campaign in the fall that Mental Health Connecticut is doing as part of this grant that we received um, from the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, I believe. And um, so uh, we did a family and friends reading um, last week. We did uh, a reading at a Mental Health Connecticut f uh, fair for young adults in the Berlin Fairgrounds a week ago. We're speaking at the uh, Connecticut Youth Forum in a week. And then um, we're, members are doing an open mic um, with another mental health group uh, at the end of May. So. You know, my hope is to continue, um, you know, stay in touch with these young adults. I, I want to say that a couple of things. One is that, you know, we just have two here today, but we had, uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, the others who were in the group too. We had uh, eight who made it through and uh, to the end. And um, their stories are strong and powerful and, um, and different. Uh, so I think it's important to sort of recognize that too. I mentioned earlier that you're a writer. Yeah. Um, you shared with us that your son has schizophrenia. How has writing helped you, and is this something that you've encouraged with your son? Uh, yes, uh, writing helps me a lot. Um, and uh, my son and I have done some writing together on this topic. Um, I'm working on a memoir and um, around this uh, this issue. Um, you know, uh, a couple of things I want to say about sort of stigma and then also just kind of recovery generally, which relate to this. Um, you know, the levels of stigma are so vast. It's sort of, um, you know, uh, Jamie has PTSD and anxiety. You know, uh, Sam has bipolar and anxiety. And I remember vividly sort of the day when we were getting a diagnosis. And in my head, I was saying, please don't let it be schizophrenia. Please don't let it be schizophrenia because, you know, in the lottery of mental illness, that's the one that I think has the most stigma associated with it often. And and that's wrong, just generally. Um, but I also think uh, that it's important to sort of, just to go back to sort of the writing idea, I think it is a way to, um, you know, that I certainly have found uh, my own recovery. Um, the path to mental illness is not linear. Um, and uh, it, and it's a process of understanding that and accepting it and letting go and celebrating it. Um, I think that um, everyone in my family, including my son, would say that uh, schizophrenia has actually been a blessing. Um, in some ways, we are better people. Um, we have learned more about each other and about ourselves, and um, my son is a happier, more evolved, and always growing person as a result of understanding what he has and being able to work with it. I'll turn back to the two participants in studio with us again, Sam and Jamie. Um, now that you've gone through right on, how do you feel? Sam, I'll start with you. I feel much more comfortable um, telling people what I have and sharing my story um, more openly. And I feel, I, I feel good about the idea that we're finally starting the conversation to stop the stigma. For a while, it's always been, well, we need to have the conversation to stop the stigma, but it feels like I'm actually contributing to starting that conversation. And Jamie? I'm going to echo a little bit of what Sam said and just say that I do feel a lot more confident in talking about um, mental health and mental awareness. Um, <clears throat> 
And actually, I have decided to continue on um, with that conversation, and I'm starting a YouTube channel. Um, It's called Being My Own Hero because when I was being abused, I kept waiting for somebody to save me. I kept waiting for my parents to notice or for a teacher to notice or for anyone to notice and to save me from this horrible situation. And eventually I realized that I had to save myself. And so on my YouTube channel, I'll be talking about how it is living with a mental illness, how I have to choose every single day to quote unquote, save myself from my diagnosis and to learn the coping mechanisms and the medical treatments that I can do to help my diagnosis and to help me live the life that I deserve to live. You said you're starting that YouTube channel? Yes. So I'm launching it on May 30th. Um, May 30th was the first day that I started being abused. And so for a long time that day has had a lot of darkness surrounding it. And every year I try to do something that reminds me that I have this wonderful life that I get to live now. So this year, that's what I'm doing. Well, I hope you share that uh, link with us uh, when it does launch. Yeah, I'd I'd love to. Jamie, Heiner, also Sam, thank you so much for coming in. It's not easy to talk about um, your lives on the radio, but (laughs) we really appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you. Thank you. Also, Janet Reynolds, uh, instructor for Write On, uh, a former English teacher, a writer, an editor. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, a Yale psychiatrist will join us as we continue our discussion about mental health. He'll explain the prevalence of mental illnesses among young adults and why many fall through the cracks in our healthcare system. And we'll take your calls and comments too, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been focusing on mental health issues and stigma that surrounds people who are mentally ill. Joining us now is a psychiatrist, Vinod Srihari. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. He's also Director of the Specialized Treatment Early in Psychosis, or STEP program. Now, STEP has launched a public education campaign on psychosis called MindMap. We'll hear about that a little later. Dr. Srihari, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Earlier in the hour, we spoke with um, some residents in Connecticut who have been diagnosed with uh, mental illnesses. We also heard from a mother who's a writing instructor, and her son has schizophrenia. She said something that that really struck me. She said uh, when they were finding out what her son, um, what issues he had before he was diagnosed, she thought to herself, she said, please don't let it be schizophrenia in the lottery of mental illness. That's the one that has the most stigma associated with it. Why is that? Why is uh, schizophrenia so heavily stigmatized, Dr. Srihari? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I think that um, I, I have speculations. I think this is a matter in some ways for historians to, to parse. The, the term itself was coined by a Swiss psychiatrist in the early 1900s and uh, really as the schizophrenia, the, the recognition that there's a lot of heterogeneity in the kinds of outcomes one would expect from people who have this illness. So, in fact, embedded in the early concept was this idea that uh, trajectories are very, very variable, as they are with uh, many medical illnesses. Some people do well, most, in fact, do quite well, and some don't do as well. Um, I think, unfortunately, the term has since been used in many different ways to denote 
uh, split personality or people who are violent. And so there's that. Um, I think there's also the reality that, like with many illnesses, um, the individuals who, for whatever reason, either chance uh, having a bad form of the illness or a lack of supports or adequate treatment, uh, understandably tended to accumulate around mental health centers uh, where they were able to get the get more attention. I think, unfortunately, this led to the, the, you know, what we call the clinician's bias, which is that if you see a lot of cases for peop- of people who aren't doing well because they need your attention, you might conclude that everyone with that illness does badly, when in fact, many of the individuals um, afflicted with, with an illness who are doing well are not uh, showing up as often to see a physician, uh, not accumulating around a clinic. So I think th- those are at least two factors I think, that contribute to the inaccurate um, prognostic uh, idea that people with this illness inevitably do poorly. To follow up on that, there's a stat that also struck us uh, from the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, They find that half of all chronic mental illness begins by age 14, three-quarters by age 24. And despite effective treatment, there are long delays. And you had just uh, mentioned that it's hard to sometimes get people in the door if otherwise they seem healthy. Is that one of the reasons that young adults are not um, diagnosed uh, when symptoms first uh, uh, start and it becomes a, a trickle effect of what happens in consequences later in their adult life? Yeah, indeed. Uh, so it's true. M- most uh, serious mental illnesses or chronic mental illnesses are really chronic diseases of the young. Uh, they onset in the late teens and early 20s. And so there's a good news, bad news side to the story. The, the bad news is that uh, we don't do a good job in healthcare systems around the world effectively engaging young people uh, into treatment at a time when they're at their peak physical health, but maybe showing the early signs of an illness that's treatable, but only if they actually are um, met with and engaged with in a manner that's attuned to what they need. Um, the good news is that simply doing what we know uh, will dramatically improve long-term outcomes. That is to say, treatments that are currently available to us, uh, that if we found a way to package them uh, correctly and deliver them in time, Uh, without the very long delays that are associated with many uh, mental illnesses, we would make a substantial improvement in the lives of individuals now, even as we develop new treatments uh, and new research will deliver improvements in the future. So so I'm very optimistic, I think, but I think that that you're exactly right. The the delays to getting to treatment are inordinately long. Uh, They they should be unacceptable to us, uh, especially since we have treatments that will make a difference. How do we improve the healthcare system um, to uh, address what you're saying, where the system is geared towards uh, older adults, but um, getting the younger people in the door uh, to get the benefits of early diagnosis? So I think one um, uh, set of strategies that we've undertaken at STEP in our campaign is is sort of uh, threefold. Um, one of them is to address what we call the supply, I'm sorry, the demand side delays. That is to say, if a young person or their family members are unaware that a change in uh, the experience or the behavior of someone might be related to an illness, they don't know that they need to seek help. So as far as the health system is concerned, uh, they are not on their radar. And our campaign that involves the use of uh, mass and social media is precisely to target this kind of delay where with adequate information, you might be able to reach out for help. 
Um, on the other side are what we call supply-side delays or the various ways in which the healthcare system drops the ball. Um, and the way we're trying to address that is by reaching out to uh, a variety of uh, caregivers in the community. Some of them are, in fact, clinicians, but many of them are members of the clergy, uh, college counseling or academic staff, uh, charities in the community, police uh, departments, who might be the first person who is on the scene that could direct the person to effective care. Uh, and then finally, I think we're trying to improve our own performance as a mental health system so that when we get a call from someone who is eligible for our care, we take a much more um, cu customer responsive approach, if you will, to uh, reducing their ambivalence to entering our system. As you might understand, um, anyone who knows anything about mental health care or the history of mental health care might have qualms about coming into an agency for care. And so we try very hard to reduce those concerns and essentially demonstrate to people what treatment is, which turns out to be reassuring, frankly, and anticlimax. It's mostly talking to people and engaging them in shared decision-making around what they would like to do uh, to treat their illness. And what about concern? We talk, we talk about it's important to get people in the door for early diagnosis and treatment, but people do have concerns about uh, medications. Um, how do you alleviate those concerns, not only for that individual, but for their families? Absolutely. So uh, all medications um, have side effects, and some of them actually have good effects. So I think this is true across um, medicine. Uh, we have many different options for medications, and uh, I think the context I would place this in is that what we should be doing for everyone um, with psychotic illnesses uh, is to provide a system of care that's safe, uh, where there's a focus on side effects, um, long-term side effects and short-term side effects of any treatment, medication or otherwise, that's effective so that we start with treatments that we have evidence that they work, uh, that's patient-centered, so a young person needs to be in charge, uh, but they also need to have enough information to make decisions, and also their uh, key caregivers, their family members, their guardians, need to have information and a voice as they would in any other decision with a young person. So uh, respecting their privacy, uh, their safety, and also their right to get effective treatment. It needs to be timely. It needs to be at the right time so it's not delivered so late that a young person is essentially um, has a series of bad experiences before they get care that might involve the police or emergency rooms. Uh, it needs to be efficient, um, so we need to find ways to collaborate with existing resources in our community so we're not creating um, inordinately expensive responses. Uh, and it needs to be equitable. You know, we need to be able to reach everyone who needs the care, not just those segments of society who are most able to find or lobby for mm -hmm. services. Within that context, I would say medications are an important tool, but they certainly are not enough uh, to, to provide the comprehensive systems we need. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Vinod Srihari, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. He's also director of the STEP program, which has a public education campaign on psychosis called MindMap. Uh, quickly, uh, doctor, if you could tell us how MindMap is working um, in communities here in Connecticut. So the, the three um, approaches I just mentioned are exactly what MindMap is employing. So we're using um, messaging in media outlets like this um, and also using Facebook and Twitter campaigns to reach young people um, and their families and friends directly with messages essentially emphasizing the evidence that early treatment does result in good outcomes, uh, in part to target the stigma related to these illnesses. 
And then we've reached out to a variety of other caregivers in the community who are referring young people with us or calling us with questions about whether this is someone they should refer. Uh, and then we've also brought down our own delays at the front door of the STEP clinic to less than a week. And so when people call us and we determine that they are eligible, we usually have them in and admitted to our service within a week. Uh, so, so this is really the, the skeleton of the Mind Map campaign. Uh, we are uh, more than halfway into this three-year campaign, and we've already looked at uh, some very encouraging results, uh, which is that we have shortened delays to care at our front door compared to where we were historically. Uh, but we've also changed the uh, nature uh, and the way in which people come to us. So the pathway to our front door is less and less through the emergency room or through the police and more and more through people uh, seeking us out themselves, which is what we would like. I want to take a listener phone call. Uh, Jackie's calling from Bristol. Jackie, you're on the show. Hi. Um, I wanted to say two quick things. Um, the first is that people who have mental illness don't have the luxury, and I don't mean that there is any luxury. I want to make that very clear. I don't mean that there is any luxury um, in being physically disabled. That's that's absolutely, yeah, no, nothing luxurious about that. Um, but mentally ill people don't have the luxury that um, physically disabled people have because there are, you know, there are buildings all over the world now that have handicapped entrances and have water fountains and, you know, apartments that are you know, made to accommodate them. And people with mental illness don't have that. And it's a very difficult, it's a difficult thing to be, to have mental illness and not, you know, have people, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. And then, oh, it's, you know, this big taboo subject. But mm -hmm. the other thing I wanted to say is that I, um, I have PTSD, or I guess I had PTSD. I worked, um, I went through a lifetime of really severe abuse and I am better. I mean, I'm a hundred percent better. Like nobody recognizes me because I'm better. And, um, I got better by using a certain technique called, um, internal system therapy. And, um, after I became well, I decided that I would become a therapist, um, so that I can reach down and help people and say, listen, I, I, you've got this because I did it. You can do it. Um, and I just want people to know there's real hope out there. Well, Jackie, thank you so much uh, for your comments, and we're glad to hear that you're doing well. Dr. Uh, Srihari, again, uh, Jackie's uh, message is that people can get better just because you get this diagnosis doesn't mean your life is over. Yeah, I, I, those are great. I want to pick up actually on two uh, of those comments. The first is this, this visual of a ramp, you know, for... Uh, helping people with wheelchairs access any variety of community resources, banks, uh, you know, uh, post offices, you name it. It's a wonderful visual image, and I think it illustrates what we, the gap we have between um, what we are trying to do in our services, which is to reduce the impairment that these illnesses can cause in an individual. But the uh, related disabilities are often the result of them not having these ramps, if you will, uh, to get back to work or school that really in some ways is a shared responsibility in our community. So I think we need to work on both, uh, reducing impairments, but also providing ways to reduce the disability that is not necessarily the impairment itself, but is really related to our 
lack of responses to that. Um, the, the other message, I think, is, is a great one. So people do get better, and I can't think of a better way to reduce stigma than to demonstrate um, what that is. And so it, the way we do that is to, is to publish the results uh, publicly of what our outcomes are. Uh, and I will say this is true of many clinics like ours around the world. Uh, you know, up to 90% of our individuals at one year uh, were in some kind of vocational work. It wasn't exactly where they wished they were when they had just gotten ill, but they were well on their way to recovering uh, various levels of functioning. Mm. Um, and more than three quarters had not been re-hospitalized. So uh, th these are outcomes that are achievable for all services. Um, and I think we need to, to let more people know that the outcomes are good um, and treatment can be effective. Thank you, Dr. Vinod Srihari. We'll have to leave it there. Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. We appreciate your time. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today marks one year since I began hosting this show. Thanks to John Dankosky for the opportunity and guidance from WNPR's executive producer, Katie Tolarski, our news director, Diane Orson, also to producer Jeff Tyson and Kion Wolf, our technical producer who makes us sound good every day. Special thanks to senior producer Lydia Brown. If you enjoy Where We Live, good producers help make the show what it is every day. Thanks, Lydia. Today I head out of the country for a reporting project in Senegal. I'll be back at the end of May. As always, thanks for listening.